You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, I feel all right now. Hey, I feel all right now. Do you feel like I do right now? Do you feel like I do right now? Motivated. Motivated. Sky high. Sky high. Rock steady. Rock steady. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can do it. I can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Hey, yeah. Hey, yeah. Okay, well, that can only mean one thing. That means that it's time for David's pick, and David has picked another Jody to play. And uh, all right, and we all remember that from uh, Basic or AIT. And it's a pleasure to have on. This is going to be a very interesting show today, folks. And we have retired Colonel Bob Bala on, and uh, Bob, first, welcome to America's Web Radio, and uh, glad. Glad you're here. Thank you, David. Yeah, thank you. And uh, we want, before we get started, and actually, after you and I talked earlier, you gave me an idea, and uh, I'm going to have to pursue this idea, as a matter of fact, and uh, look at it uh, from the standpoint of, uh, it might be interesting to do a show around this. I don't know. It, uh, I... Uh, ask you how to exactly pronounce your name and you told me and I said I don't I'm not familiar with that and you said it was Irish so give us a little background on your on your last name sure Bala is uh, a fairly common name in Ireland but uh, there there's some a number of villages both in uh, in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland that have the name Bala in it but more importantly Fa'abala um is, uh, which means lead the way, uh, although the Brits have another more obscene uh, way of interpreting that. Uh, Fall about lead the way is the battle cry of the 69th Irish Regiment, uh, and it was formed in uh, uh, during the Napoleonic Wars at the Battle of Barossa in 1809. That's when it was first used. That uh, followed well, stuck the 69th Regiment. Now there is in in New York City, as part of the New York National Guard, there is the 69th Irish Regiment that was formed uh, out of uh, Irishmen that immigrated to New York, and that regiment fought in World War One, World War Two with the Rainbow Division, the 42nd Infantry Division, also fought during the Civil War as the Irish Regiment, 69th Irish Regiment. And they use the same battle cry, Fa'a'a'a'a. So, from a military perspective, it has uh, it has uh, some significance. Uh, excuse me, the phone's ringing on the other side. Uh, has has some significance uh, that goes beyond just the name Bala. I, I think that's fascinating, and uh, like I said, it may have given me an idea for a show and. Uh, uh, I find names very interesting, and particularly where the uh, individual knows the the uh, history of it and uh, the uh, genetics of it, you might say. And uh, I, I just found that very interesting. So we have retired colonel. That uh, colonel, you went to uh, West Point. And you said yes, there's a 
little interesting story that from high school to where and then to West Point. Well, it was uh, interesting. When I, I was raised as an Army brat. My, my father stayed in uh, after World War II. Uh, the first place that I lived uh, associated with the Army was the island of Saipan in 1946. And after spending, uh, so we lived in four or five different places, including Saipan, Japan, and Texas, Kansas, and Colorado, and Washington, D.C. I uh, uh, <coughs> loved airplanes when I was a kid. Uh, when we were living in Japan, I went and, and uh, down to the model airplane club. I was a young teenager, and... Uh, hung out with the, with the airmen that were down there and built model airplanes and went off to flying contests. And I decided that uh, when I grew up, I was going to be a fighter pilot. Hmm. Uh, I went uh, for a naval ROTC uh, uh, examination, medical examination, and they put me in a dark room that was about 30 feet long and put a little... Uh, light down at the end of the room and said, okay, this is the ship lantern test. What we're going to do is we're going to turn the lights out in here, and the only thing you'll see are three, two, two little lights down there, and they can come on in different color combinations, uh, white and green, <coughs> excuse me, white and green, red and green, red and white. <clears throat> so they flip these uh, lights on in very, you know, kind of random sequences, and I had to identify which colors they were, which was on the left side, which was on the right side. I failed miserably. <laughs> uh, so they said, you're not qualified, you're colorblind. And I said, well, can I even go in the Navy? And they said, well, you can go in the Navy, but you can't uh, can't do anything with uh, uh, being a captain of a ship. Uh, you'd have to have some job that... Uh, you know, supply or something that, that would require you to stand watch. And I said, I said, well, that's uh, that's an interesting. Didn't know that. So I went home. At the time, I was sixteen, fifteen, maybe. I don't recall the exact uh, year that it happened. Uh, but but uh, we went to the medical clinic at Fort Myer, and the doctor said, well, we'll t- we'll do a little test just to see what kind of color blindness you have here. And he took out of uh, his bottom drawer a large uh, 8x11 manila envelope. And he pulled out the top tray of his desk, and that was covered with a piece of white paper. And he dumped out of the envelope uh, a whole bunch of pieces of yarn. Uh, Turns out they were all in pairs. And he said, we're going to play a little game here. says... I'm going to pick one, and you'll, you'll go find the mate for it. So he picked a black one. That was easy. He picked a dark blue, and that was easy. Then he picked a pink one, and it took me three tries to find it. Uh, so I have a color blindness that, that prevents me from – it's hard for me to distinguish, and this was what was true in the ship lantern test, between green and white at distance, light green and, you know, kind of a yellowish-white uh, don't show up very well in my spectrum. Uh, <clears throat> fairly common among men. Uh, I found out later that up to 20% of the male population is of the United States is colorblind. But but um, anyway, that kind of dashed my chances of of going to Annapolis or being in the uh, uh, Naval ROTC so I could fly fighter jets off of aircraft carriers. 
my fallback position was to go into Army ROTC or go to West Point. I uh, was not a particularly good student in high school, and uh, I was I was very young. I turned 17 in April and graduated from at the end of April and graduated from high school on the 4th of June. Uh, so what I did is I went into the Army immediately. I was in, I, I had about a month from high school graduation to the time I was sworn into the Army. Um, I went to basic training, and while I was in basic training, I applied to go to the uh, Army's uh, Military Academy Prep School which at the time was located in Fort Belvoir, Virginia. And uh, that, that uh, experience helped me get my, it did a couple things for me. One, uh, gain an appreciation of the real Army uh, with the non-commissioned officers and the officers that I met during basic training. And they were not drill sergeants. They, these, these guys, we took basic training in a, uh, in a combat unit. And, and secondly, got my uh, academics up high enough that I could qualify to get into West Point. Uh, so the rest is kind of history. I entered West Point in 1960, graduated in 64, and uh, went on to a full career in the Army. Wow. So in 64, uh, in the heat of things, that's, uh, I would assume that's when you became a platoon leader in uh, Vietnam or there, thereabouts shortly. <laughs> No, 64 was just at the beginning of the Vietnam War. My first assignment, uh, I went to uh, Ranger and Airborne School and then I was and got married. My first assignment was in Germany. Hmm. I went to Germany in December of uh, 64. So you spent uh, some time at uh, Benning, right? Yeah, yeah, about uh, four months maybe yeah. for Ranger and Airborne. And uh, then went to Germany. I was a field artillery officer, so I went into a field artillery unit in Augsburg, Germany. Hmm. And we were pretty much um, at uh, authorized strength in both officers, NCOs, and, of course, the Army in those days was draft army. By uh, After about a year and a half, I'd say around April of 1966, uh, Europe was drawn down significantly in terms of officers and NCOs to backfill units in Vietnam. And, um, uh, you know, we it's kind of interesting. During, uh, during the Vietnam War, we had more people stationed in Germany than we did in Vietnam. Huh. Uh, the real threat was considered to be the, the Soviet uh, uh, conquest of Western Europe. Uh, even though we were fighting a hot war in Vietnam. So uh, that, that, there were some strange dynamics that went on. The field artillery took the junior officers out. I was, by that time, uh, a first lieutenant and, and um, uh, well on my way to being a captain. Uh, so I stayed behind and went and commanded a battery in Munich, Germany, for about another year. So I didn't leave Germany until... Oh, late, uh, late 1968. Hmm. I'm my, sorry, late 19, 1967. I went straight from Germany to Vietnam. My son's uh, station in uh, Germany, uh, uh, Kaiserhaden. Uh-huh. At uh, Ronstadt. Where, where was he? He's, he's stationed in, uh, well, Ronstadt. And, uh, uh-huh. 
he lives in uh, Kaiserhaden. Yeah, Kaiser Slaughter. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. yeah. So he's stationed in Ramstein then. Mm-hmm. What does he what does he do there? He's a uh, Air Force Intel. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, well that's that's great. Yeah, he's it, a- uh we have very few tr- troops in Germany now. Um there's only one army brigade over there. Uh there's a, a brigade in Italy. And, uh, and then the Air Force, uh, the large base at Ramstein, and the and the uh, military hospital that's there. Right, right. I think yeah. that's where everybody goes initially in New York from the right. Middle East to uh, up and down in Europe. Go to that's where they fly them to. I guess that's where they do their major triage or their major surgery, whatever they have to do. Sure. Uh, that's correct. With that being said, we're going to be coming up on our first break here shortly and just want to mention the fact that uh, we're going to, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, Bob's, uh, what he's done out in Peachtree Corners and I want to remind everybody that uh, the Johns Creek Vietnam Veterans Association is going to be having their... uh, uh, opening ceremony of the Healing Wall, which is the uh, 50% replica, 50% size replica of the uh, Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C. This wall traveled all over the country and has literally been known for healing folks uh, after they've gone to it and, uh, you know, found names of their friends or family or whatever it happens to be. It's uh, It's been a stopping and a starting point for many, many folks and uh want to invite everybody out it'll be march the 28th and uh the ribbon cutting ceremony and also we want to remind everybody about the uh georgia military veterans hall of fame which is in downtown atlanta and again uh i i salute him every time rick white is uh he has done just a fantastic job with the hall of fame and uh like Rick says, bring your own box of Kleenex as you're walking through it and looking at our heroes of actually today, yesterday, and uh, those that served many, many years ago. And it's uh, it's something that will inspire you. And please take your kids and let them read everything and learn everything about our heroes of yesterday. And uh, we have Colonel... Bob Balaon today, and uh, we're talking to Bob about what he did and, and the history that he has gone through. And uh, I guess I want to point out too today that, uh, as you well know, Bob, we're living history. What's going on here in the country today? Uh, and they've called out, as I understand it, troops in a number of different areas now to assist. And uh, we are we are a big part of history today, and it will be written about and talked about for years. So, with that being said, you went to Germany, and after Germany, you went to Nam. And, Correct. Uh, and artillery in Nam. Uh, yes. I had a, yes, I was I was a battery commander over there. I was on the battalion staff, then a battery commander over there for for uh, during my one year tour. 
was in the first cavalry division. First cav, big right. big yellow, big yellow patch on your show on your arm, right? That's correct. And uh, uh, which they went to cam. We were talking about this the other day. They went to camouflage shortly after that, and uh, the big big yellow patch uh, was too good of a target. Yeah. It was. It was a very good target. So, you know, Vietnam, a lot of things changed, and uh, I would venture to say uh, mostly for the good, but uh, it was a a different war for us, and uh, it was, uh, we've had a lot of different folks on that uh, played different roles, and I always bring up you know the the ones that are, are everybody that served uh, I served during the Vietnam era as they call it now it's, I didn't go to Vietnam but uh, I still have all the respect in the world for the dust off pilots and I gained a new respect for the when I first went in uh, there was a we did it. We were still in the. I was in the draftee stage, and uh, then they changed over to finally the lottery. But the conscientious objectors, I, I had a real problem with. But the history of the ones that went ahead and served in Nam are true heroes as well. Many of them took up the uh, medical bag. Correct. And there's yep. no telling how many of them, how many lives they saved. And uh, they were not cowards. They were, they had their belief, and now I respect their belief, and uh, certainly respect what they did and what the dust-off pilots did. Yep, they sure uh, sure did a great job, um, all of them, and there are a lot of people that uh, owe their life to uh, to both of those uh, groups that you mentioned, especially the medics and dust-off. Uh, just incredible stories that uh, that occurred um, during Vietnam. Oh yeah, and uh, I want to throw out too um, Bob G- Babcock's book, which is "I'm Ready to Talk," and uh, that, that that the name of his book has particular meaning to the like like yourself, Bob, that that served in Vietnam. Um, our, our troops back then, and, and a lot of them even today, um, they saw things that that were beyond incredible, and they couldn't explain some of the things that they saw, that one human could do this to another human. And um, they came back, and uh, they would only... A Vietnam veteran, in many, many cases, would only talk to another Vietnam veteran. And uh, the power of the associations that are all over the country now is uh, has brought a lot of good guys out of the dark places. Well, you know, that's, uh, that's true, if I think, uh, of, of any intensive combat. I found that to be true. I, I married into a very large family. And I had uh, two of my brothers-in-law fought in World War II. Uh, one of them was captured as POW. He was captured during the Battle of the Bulge. 
And then two of my brothers-in-law fought in World War II. My father was in World War II. And, and I found uh, that they didn't like to talk about it either. Uh, they would open up a little bit to me because, you know, I had been to Vietnam and I understood. But still, it's not, uh, it's not quite the same. And um, uh, they uh, <laughs> kind, of, kind of interesting. I met a person here in, uh, in Peach and Corners one day that said, well, what, what can we do for, for veterans? And I said, well, if you open a bar that allows <laughs> people to smoke inside, you'll attract a lot of veterans into it. Uh, there was some truth to that, particularly with the World War II generation. I think that, that our generation is a bit different, but we still had the same problems. And, and I know that uh, uh, one of my brothers-in-law, uh, the, not the one, the one who was captured was really traumatized by the experience. He was a medic. And he, you know, they separated, the Germans separated officers from NCOs from soldiers. So he was with the uh, in a POW camp, I can't recall the the number of the Stalag he was in, but but I do know that he was required to take care of the injured and sick uh, Americans that were in that camp, mm. and it uh, the the march to the camp and that experience really traumatized him for the rest of his life. He also contracted cancer from it and uh, and passed at a fairly young age. Um, the, my older brother-in-law had different experiences, but but as he grew older, uh, he started having uh, what we would now call PD, PTSD nightmares sure. about his experience in World War II. And <clears throat> it comes back and, and haunts, and I'm glad to see that people are talking about the experience now, but uh, it isn't over until it's over, and, you know, even even though people share their stories, uh, you still have you still have problems uh, uh, with it in a way that uh, the youngsters understand. Um, I'm writing a book for my grandchildren, and uh, there, of course there'll be a chapter in there about Vietnam. Uh, and I've I've made some videos, a witness to war uh, video that they I've shared with them and. Uh, but it's still, you know, their eyes kind of glaze over a little bit. They just just don't quite get it. And it's one of those things you don't, you you can't uh, give 100% of the experience that you've had. Uh, but you can sure sure share a bit more. And I am glad to see the books that are being published in the museums and the the wall. I think goes a long way towards towards helping that as did the World War II memorial and the free, the the honor flights that go in to visit that. Sure. Uh, it, it, it's helped an awful lot. Well, you know, we're not all alike, and we all have different needs from different experiences, and uh, it, um, it, it one, one Vietnam vet talking to another uh sometimes those needs will come out and be apparent and be able to be fixed at the time while others you know will never be able to be fixed and uh nobody or no place uh can really do it it it's uh we're just all individuals and we have yeah. different needs and uh you know you can't even though you go to bed you you can't Always, yeah. even though you're asleep, you can't always shut off your mind. Yeah, and, uh, I uh, I also have the utmost respect for 
uh, people like yourself that didn't serve in. Uh, and I think there's less of a gap now uh, than there might have been in World War II, um, uh, because there was a, a substantial gap between the the guys that did fight. You could see it in the organizations. You know, you have the veterans of foreign wars, which is uh, not open to anybody that wasn't, didn't fight in a foreign war. And then you have AMVETS that welcomes any veteran, and I think that's really important. Uh, the important thing about it all is that. Even though I was selected to go, and I was a regular Army officer in West Point and all that, so, you know, I fully expected to go and um, and did. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you or, or uh, like the mayor of our city, Mike Mason, uh, who uh, was in the Navy for four years, a Navy corpsman, and spent his entire time at Bethesda Naval Hospital. Uh, the 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 trick is that uh, whether you were drafted or whether you enlisted, uh, you signed your blank check, and uh, you went where Uncle Sam sent you. And uh, it could have been to Vietnam, or it could have been to Bethesda Naval Hospital, or it could have been to Germany. Uh, the first battery I commanded, there was one officer, me, uh, about four or five NCOs that had more than five years in the Army, and we were at 110% strength. Wow. Uh, so, you know, they had... Uh, uh, those guys all served uh, just as proudly, and I know that there. I've met a few that that don't feel comfortable, you know, mixing with the guys that went to combat. And I, I tried my best to to assuage them a little bit to convince them that their service was just as valuable. Well, uh, I can only speak for myself, obviously, and I, I appreciate that. But uh, you know, you. Um we're all individuals, and we make up the mind and decide what we think's best for ourselves at the time, I guess. And uh, then other times we uh, we see what our our friends and uh, others have the ultimate sacrifice. But um, I hope now that I'm doing some part to continue to help, and uh, that the radio station is getting out and and telling people. And uh, it, it's sort of like. Um, the call-up of, uh, and I, I go through this too many times, actually, but, uh, and I want to come, when we, we're, uh, I'll tell my story, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about, I want to talk about Peachtree Corners, uh, but, you know, we, as a radio station, if I've ever done, hopefully, any good with our military, was when they called up the ARs and NGs for uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And what people don't understand, a lot of folks don't understand that have never served, even as little time as I was on active duty, no matter what fort you are, you're at or what base you're at or whatever, it's a family. And if a, a company or a brigade or whatever is deployed, then the people across the street fill in and they help and they they help the wives of the of the deployee and uh, it just and and when the ar army reserve and national guard was called up for desert shield and desert storm there was no aid for the for the wives left behind or the spouse left behind and we asked at that time we went on the air many times asking that uh if your neighbor has been called up and is deployed to uh, 
the Middle East, offer to help the, the spouse that's left behind. Fix the door, change the change the, the lights, do this, do whatever she needs or he needs or whatever the situation might be, offer. And uh, I still always make the point that if you're in an airport and you see someone that's a veteran or you that has a Vietnam cap on or whatever, buy them a meal or if you see someone in uniform, whether it's first responder or Army, Navy, whatever it is, buy them a meal, buy them a drink. It'll make you feel, I guarantee you, it'll make you feel so good. And it'll make the person that you buy it for feel appreciated, but it will make you feel better than he or she. So anyway, that's my that's my two cents lecture, Bob. Well, that's a great lecture. <laughs> yeah, it really is. We have to appreciate the folks that, yeah. whether it's first responders or our any branch of our military, they're there taking care of us. Right. And uh, a meal is a is a small thing to give somebody that's. Uh, willing to go into a warehouse in the middle of the night and see what's on the other side of the wall or the the person that's uh, dug in in a foxhole or whatever the situation might be and and uh, is there to protect us and uh, we owe a, we owe a lot of gratitude to those folks so anyway we've uh, let's talk about what you all are doing at Peach Street Corners Okay, we're glad to do that. Uh, about, uh, gosh, it's been five years ago. It's March of uh, 2015. First of all, let me back up a little. Peachtree Corners is only seven years old as a city. So as a jurisdiction with, uh, you know, an elected city council and a mayor and uh, a hired city manager, uh, we're, we're still kind of new at this. But uh, in 2015... Uh, the mayor and one of our councilmen, Alex Wright, uh, got together and said, you know, uh, <clears throat> Alex had met a World War II veteran, I'm sorry, a Korean War veteran at the YMCA, and he told a marvelous story. And uh, Alex went back and went first to the mayor and said, you know, it would really be great if we had in this city of ours some kind of monument to honor our veterans and that that monument could have some interactive functionality in it to record their stories so that we don't just get uh, brick and mortar, that we also get, uh, you know, the real people involved. So they talked about that a little bit, and then then the mayor called a meeting that uh, said something like, uh, anybody that is interested in in working on a project to, to build a, Veterans Monument in our city uh, can come to a meeting and I think it was on the 15th of March, the Ides of March of uh, 2015. I went, uh, a businessman, local businessman, Tom Beatty, uh, owns a company, Insight Sourcing Group, showed up. Tom has a hobby, it's called Witness to War, and he has a full-time director for that. Uh, the Witness to War organization does recordings of combat veterans and then sends them into the Library of Congress collection and, and also gives copies to the family. And uh, so Emily Carley, the director, showed up. Uh, 
the mayor and uh, and Alex Wright were both there. Uh, Judy Putnam, the, the city's communications director, was there. Uh, another West Point graduate, uh, prominent in the community, Doug Heckman, showed up. And uh, uh, the city's planning director, uh, community planning director, was there. So we all sat down at the table and and the question, of course, is should we have a veterans monument? Now, Peachtree Corners does not have a town center, did not at the time. It was really more of a uh, uh, suburban uh, work and living community uh, on a grand scale, uh, <clears throat> designed that way deliberately. The Atlanta Technology Park uh, that provided a lot of high-tech companies and uh, and then we had the the neighborhoods surrounding it um, with their own swim and tennis clubs and that sort of thing as part of greater Gwinnett County but we incorporated in 2013 and and but with with the kind of the way it grew up it's uh, you know no central focus point for the city no city hall uh, none of the things that you would expect in a in a traditional city like uh, Marietta or or uh, Alpharetta, places that uh, have been around with city names for a lot longer. Um, so the first, everybody agreed that there ought to be something. Uh, the going in position was that every town has some kind of uh, every small town in America has some kind of veterans monument or veterans memorial. All you have to do is drive through them. And you'll usually find it, find it in uh, uh, the center of the town, close to City Hall, or in some perspective like that. Uh, and I, I basically think that's true. I grew up, uh, spent a lot of my time, was born in the Northeast, and I know that uh, that every place that I ever went to in the Northeast certainly has some kind of monument uh, honoring their soldiers all the way back to the American Revolution. So <clears throat> the second uh, question was, should we call it a monument or a memorial? And uh, we decided monument. There's a very uh, there's there is a stringent definition of this, by the way, uh, in the in the VA, the Veterans Administration. A memorial is specifically designed to memorialize those uh, people who died in combat in the service of their country. And uh, a monument uh, can honor a larger a larger group. So we pick monument. Now, that doesn't mean people can't within that monument can't be memorialized. We do have uh, a number of people who are memorialized by pavers that their families donated uh, in our fundraising effort. So that was question number two. Question number three is: uh, Should this be a city project or should it be a nonprofit? Uh, we decided uh, to go the nonprofit route with the city support behind it, and uh, uh, <clears throat> that's exactly what we did. Uh, we we stuck with the nonprofit. Uh, they immediately elected me to lead it, and uh, so I said, "Okay, if I'm going to lead this, everybody sitting at the table today has to be on my board." So uh, that's kind of the way we organized ourselves <laughs> uh, over the next. Um, four or five months, we did all the things you have to do to get incorporated and become a recognized nonprofit by the IRS, um, put into place the legal documentation, the bylaws, and so we're incorporated in the state of Georgia as a, as a nonprofit uh, corporation. 
um, we uh, then we started raising money, and we really started. Uh, I think our first check came in uh, December of uh, two thousand. Well, actually, it came in a little bit early. We got some money from one of the banks when we opened our bank account. Um, you know, I said I need some cash to start this thing off, and they graciously donated some. And one of our business associations in the city gave us a check also. Uh, we found uh, an architect that uh, started us off with some pro bono work. Uh, we later got to the point where it was outside of his particular expertise, but uh, he, he gave us the initial concept that, that kind of carried through the whole thing. And uh, uh, we started raising money pretty heavily in uh, 2016, uh, ultimately reaching uh, uh, 517 thousand dollars raised from private funds uh, to to support to build the monument and do the necessary logistic support that sort of thing that you need to go raise more money. Um, that's that's where we started. Yes. Uh, things came up, the first thing we had to decide is, well, what do we want it to look like and where will it go? Uh, we had opted initially for a circular monument with a, uh, a sculpture in the center uh, of an eagle, uh, you know, pretty classic kind of thing, surrounded by five large granite, uh, black granite uh, plaques, one for each service. Uh, on a brick plaza that allowed us, would allow us to uh, sell engraved brick cravers as part of our fundraising effort and to, to recognize our veterans and memorialize those uh, that, that we wanted to memorialize or that people wanted to memorialize. Uh, <clears throat> about uh, spring of 2016, uh, Emily Carley, the Witness to War Director, uh, uh, actually it was... I'm sorry, let me back up a little bit. It was in the fall of 2015. Uh, Emily Carley recalled a phone call she had received uh, oh, three or four years prior from a sculptor in Pennsylvania who said, I like to honor uh, veterans once a year with my sculpture by donating a sculpture to a particular project. And, of course, Witness to War is, is all uh, video and soft stuff. So they turned her down. But we called him back and asked if he's still interested. And he did. His name is Chad Fisher. Uh, and he agreed to uh, do a sculpture. And then he said, why don't we do one for each service? And I said, okay. That sounds mm -hmm. great to me. Uh, so he volunteered uh, and, and joined the team as our sculptor. Uh, we we purchased the bronze and the materials that he had to use to do it, but he he did a, he he did all of the work uh, for it, uh, the design and and the actual construction, the sculptures and the installation at his own cost. Bob, Bob uh, let me interrupt you for one second. Sure. Where can sure. Uh, as people are listening to this, what's your website and they could see what you're talking about, right? Sure, they certainly can. It is PTC Vets. That's P-T-C, Papa Tango Charlie, Vets, uh, Victor Echo Tango Sierra, for the military guys listening, I ought to know what that is, yeah. uh, .net, ptcvets.net. PTC and there's there's a picture of sculpture there, there's a story of it, 
There's also a link on the, on the City of Peachtree Corners website. I think that's uh, peachtreecornersgeorgia.ga.gov. Uh, and that uh, has a video of how we put this all together. Uh, it's a, it's very well done. It's got some great pictures in it to include installing the sculptures and and uh, and the dedication ceremony for it. You know, as we've talked and uh, Rick White and I've talked, Rick being the uh, director of the. Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, and also mm-hmm. Mike Mazel. He was in last week, and we talked. Right. And, uh, you know, North Georgia is becoming quite a military tourist attraction with what you're with your project, with the healing wall in uh, Johns Creek, and then just down the road a piece in Atlanta is the uh, Hall of Fame. And it just. Uh, you know, I think it shows something about Georgians, and not that other states don't have it, but I know where I live in Johns Creek, uh, there are a number of veterans in, within, you know, close distance, and the same way I'm sure in Peachtree Corners and uh, in all of North Georgia, there are a lot of veterans that uh, have decided to live out their lives here, and and give back and let the, I would say in your case and in Rick's case and everybody that I know that has come into the studio and we've talked to, they didn't do it for, you didn't do it for Bob, you did it for the guy next to you and in front of you and behind you, whether you ever know their names or not. You did it for your brothers. That's correct. And, uh, I think this is something that, uh, you know, people just don't understand. And uh, But they, they will get a feel of it if they go to Peachtree Corners, and they'll also get a feel of it. Uh, you know, the thing interesting about the uh, healing wall is not they'll get a feel for it not by as much by the wall as they will by just looking at the people that are there. And it's, and that, that's very true. That's very true. When I go over and visit our monument, which is only a little over a mile from where I live, uh, there's always somebody there. And uh, there are always kids there. And so, you know, I've, I, if I've got the time, I'll say, uh, you know, I'll ask the kids uh, um, yeah, if they know what they're looking at. And so I tell them some of the stories that uh, build the background behind the sculptures that we have. <coughs> We've named each of our sculptures uh, after after some uh, uh, military person, and uh, you know I tell them a little story about that. And I said, "Oh wow, you know, uh, we we want to uh, go to the schools this next summer and uh, and talk to the school leaders about what they have that we can take the children to." on a field trip or require homework assignments um, around uh, Veterans Day uh, specifically it's usually outside the school area and um, I think we've got a good the, the, the modern project itself is a, is a good opportunity yeah. uh, Bob I, I don't know if you're adjusting your uh, headset or something but 
you're coming in and out on me. Oh, I'm sorry. There you go. Now that's okay. better. Let me uh, let me ask you a hardball question, and I promised I wouldn't. But the, have you ever known a vet that has one story? Just one story. Just one story. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I never have. And I don't think you ever will. And uh, no. I think this is what uh, I hope people will get out of this that if if you didn't serve yourself but your father did your brother did your cousin did whoever or your neighbor did sit down and just talk to them and uh ask them about what they you know what's their favorite story or what do they you know and if they'll talk to you you will be mesmerized in my opinion and uh I'm very fortunate, like I said, I, I served during the era, and I can talk to some folks and at least bring up, like, um, I, I was infantry, I, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't artillery, so I can't really talk that much about artillery, but uh, I uh, remember and love the sound of the M71 grenade launcher. Uh-huh. It sounded like that tomato falling into the jar of of Heinz ketchup. And uh, it was just a fantastic sound. And uh, we'll all, I'll go to my grave remembering that. Oh, yeah, it kind of a little pop out there. Well, it, of course, I was in the 1st Cavalry Division, and I can tell you when a, what kind of helicopter, if it's a Huey or Chinook or uh, <laughs> uh, an LOH, I can tell you exactly what kind of helicopter it is. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and you know what uh, you knew what they were there for, and uh, yep, that go away. Either either you'd been through a firefight or whatever, or they were there for the firefight that was about to start up. And uh, you know, all of the pilots, I have the greatest respect. Most of them uh, were warrant officers back then, as right. a, as opposed to uh, officers. But the, you know. Well, let me ask you. We've got about uh, 14 minutes to go, but uh, what's your favorite story, Bob? Oh, it, it's, uh, it's not necessarily a Vietnam story. It's a story about Germany, and this is uh, uh, kind of interesting. Actually, a couple of them are related. Uh, when I was in Germany in uh, 1964, I actually arrived 64, but uh, on, on New Year's, on uh, the 30th of December, so my time really started in 65. <clears throat> we, uh, France withdrew from the military side of NATO. We had a lot of military supplies in France, and the French told us to get them out. Uh, first and foremost were uh, small nuclear weapons. I was in a, an artillery unit that, that could shoot, that was nuclear capable. Um, and um, so I went and I took command of a 155 howitzer battery. It's about six inches in diameter. Uh, in, uh, in Munich, and about two days after I took command, uh, I got a call from you. The uh, two started to say, you need to some of your classified hand receipt. And I said, well, what's that for? And he said, well, I can't tell you. The phone's classified. So I went up and I found out it was for six nuclear weapons. <laughs> I was... My, 
I was really, I didn't know, I frankly, I knew we had trained on them, but I did train to use them, but I didn't know that we actually had some stockpiled uh, nearby. So that was uh, <clears throat> one of my stories, went out to to look at the site where it was stored, and, and I said, oh, I hope we do better than this, because it was an old German World War II bunker surrounded by some wire. <laughs> Basically, uh, not, not a very secure environment for what the weapons were capable of. Uh, the second story is related to that. Uh, we were we carried all of our ammunition uploaded at the time, so our tanks uh, uh, all had live rounds on them. Our howitzers all had live ammunition, so that if we went to uh, had to go fight the Russians, uh, we could do it without having to stop someplace to get ammunition. That all changed during the 1970s. Uh, but when I was there, you know, you had this load of ammunition. Well, one day I got up and went to work and uh, learned that uh, that uh, a tank had been stolen overnight and was driving from Munich out to Dachau, uh, where where they have a where they had a, uh, uh, a Stalag, a uh, internment camp there. And uh, he was going to settle up some scores from World War II. <laughs> Fortun- fortunately, he only got about, uh, that guy was only about 10 miles away, but he only got about five miles away before he ran the tank into the ditch. He was obviously drunk. <laughs> uh, so, you know, these little stories go on. One of my neighbors uh, was a, a fellow by the name of Kriebel, uh, K-R-I-E-B-E-L, very German name. Um, and his wife and my wife got on bicycles one day and rode out to Dachau. They have a museum there in Dachau. And they went went on a bicycle ride out to Dachau, went to the museum. And uh, uh, Jim Kriebel's wife came back and said, Jim, I saw, uh, went to the museum in Dachau today, and I saw the name of a general by the name of von Kriebel who commanded Dachau and the Dachau garrison in the early 1930s. And Jim looked at her and said, "Yeah, that's my grandfather." So, wow. you know, it's it's really uh, now he was uh, he was in the uh, in the German army not uh, before Hitler came to power, but you know he'd been commander of that garrison in the uh, in the 1930s. He was replaced, I think, uh, about 1935 or 36 when he retired, but. But, uh, you know, it's uh, it's kind of a small world uh, in many respects, too, particularly for our country where we have so many immigrant families. Oh, and, and uh, you just never know when uh, you're going to find out how small a world it is, you know? It, That's it's, exactly right. And uh, I've seen, in fact, uh, I don't know if, you, if you're aware, but General Dix does a show with me and uh, on America's Web Radio and... We have quite a quite a time talking about um, different things, and uh, you know, people as as big as the military is, all branches, you never know who you're going to run into. And uh, uh, we were talking the other day; it was like he ran into a school buddy, I ran into uh, uh, my my uh, platoon sergeant. First sergeant in uh, AIT was a guy named Danny Nowak. He and I had gone to high school together. And, That'd be uh, darn. You know, and you say, what are the chances? Well, 
I hear about these stories all the time of somebody oh, yeah. knowing somebody that, you know, either from school or from their hometown or whatever the case might be. But um, you think, well, my goodness, how could that happen? And yet it happens more frequently than people would think. And uh, you just you just never know. And you never know who's going to. Who's going to be on? Uh, you're commanding, or they're commanding you? Well, that's exactly right. It, it really is uh, a very, very small and very interesting world that we live in. Oh yeah, and, and, uh, and six and degrees it, of separation certainly applies for for the military. I've run into people that were in the unit next door that I didn't know uh, served there. Uh, yeah, so. It, it it gets you coming and going sometimes, but uh, right. it is interesting. And uh, you know, Peachtree Corners. Tell everybody because we got a lot of people that are listening that uh, don't live sure. in Atlanta, Georgia. Peachtree Corners uh, is on the northeast side of Atlanta. Uh, if you uh, are headed to the North Georgia Mountains, you can. You can, one of the routes you can take passes right through the center of the city on Georgia Highway 141. Uh, our Veterans Monument is located on the newly uh, designed and established Town Green. Uh, we didn't have a town center, so we built one as a city. And uh, <clears throat> the Veterans Monument is uh, about 2,500 square foot plaza uh, with uh, seven sculptures, bronze sculptures. Uh, representing all services, uh, including the Merchant Marine. And uh, uh, it's uh, just a nice, quiet place to visit. It's in a very public place, so it gets a lot of traffic. And uh, we welcome you to come uh, visit at any time. And if you'd like uh, some more information, my name is on the website, so you can reach out and contact me, and I'd be glad to to, uh, arrange for a special tour if you're interested in that. You know, Bob, you just said something I didn't realize, and most uh, places don't acknowledge merchant marines, and yet those guys during World War II particularly served one of the greatest purposes of all, and that was being uh, they were the ones that shipped the supplies from the U.S. to Europe with zero protection. And uh, they didn't have weapons. They didn't have. They didn't have the quality radar. They didn't have much of anything other than a hope and a prayer. And uh, they got little respect. They got little acknowledgement. And um, thank you for doing that. I think that, that's great. Basis, the people. Pardon me. And we had. We did as the Minuteman that honors the National Guard Reserves and uh, right under the uh, National Guard is the the second service to be. Now, technically, it's a support arm that uh, <clears throat> works for the Navy, uh, but but not armed as uh, as armed people and. Um, uh, it, I had a merchant mariner call me last week and and thank me for putting it up. And I was uh, that's the first one that's done that. A gentleman from Florida up here happened to be visiting. Well, for the folks that either listen or are listening right now, or the folks that will tune in and listen later on a podcast, you know, I that that is just 
fantastic that you all did that. Who was it? Your idea or someone else's? And we ought to give them credit. Uh, well, as we went as we went through the evolution of uh, planning, we had an opportunity to put another statue up, and uh, the the sixth. Uh, sculpture for a service was for the National Garden Reserves. We just we just collectively said, "Why don't we do that?" and um, and that gave us the opportunity to do it. So uh, you can see a picture of that on our website at ptcvets.net, and uh, all of the sculptures are there along with their story. That's super, and uh, this this is just a. Uh as I asked many, not all, but many, Bob, will you come back and sort of update us on what's going on with the uh, with Peachtree Corners and uh, what you all plan to do, or what's there now, and then what you plan in the future? And I'm sure that it will be a, uh, how do I say, changing, but not drastic change. It'll be what you've got there now, but there'll be additions to it, I'm sure. And... Um, if you, I would love to have you back on uh, in the future. Will you come back and join sure. us? Sure, be glad to do that. And uh, I want to remind everybody that uh, to go out to Peachtree Corners, find it, and uh, you, as I understand it, uh, there's a monument there, and then you just push a button, and it'll be it'll fill in the story. Is that basically correct? There, yeah, the monument's there. Uh, we've got two things. We have an app. It goes on to uh, your uh, telephone mm-hmm. uh, or an iPad. Uh, we have a full website if you're sitting at a computer at home. And and then we have a, a locator uh, <clears throat> that has limited amounts of information on it. We don't want to uh, tie up the network in the city, pulling down a lot of stuff uh, through the city's uh, through the city's network out there. But but we have a brick finder that finds a brick, and it will tell you uh, if a photograph is available. It will show you a photograph of the person the brick is named after. If there's a video available, it will tell you that. And you have to go to your iPhone or your your uh, smartphone to see the video. Uh, and if there's a additional information about uh, the individual, we've put that right on the we've built it right into the brick finder. So, uh, for example. Uh, um, my son is uh, has a brick in there, and it tells you that he was uh, commissioned in 1994, and is my son. Wow! <laughs> and so, you know, you get a little a little taste about what the relationships are uh, among the various uh, people. That is super. Well, with that being said, we're going to have to uh, put the plug in the jug, get out of here, get ready for. Uh, uh, our next show, Healthcare Highlights or Insight. And uh, Bob, again, thank you, and thank you for what you've done. And and I'm glad we you mentioned the Merchant Marines. They they need a salute as well as anybody else does. They were brave, brave pe- people in World War II. And uh, want to thank you, and look forward to uh, the next time we get to visit about Peachtree Corners. Take care. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Dave. Yes, sir. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.